Well, good morning. If you have your Bible today, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to welcome all of you here at the beginning of this holiday season, those that are worshiping here in our sanctuary, uh, those that are over uh, for our summit service, and all those that are watching at home, uh, looking forward uh, to what the Lord has uh, pointed me toward this week to share with you a message from 2 Timothy chapter 9. Uh, as you know, and as I just said, this is the beginning of a holiday season, uh, so we've got all these big holidays wrapped up in just about five weeks. We have Thanksgiving, and then we have Christmas, and then we have New Year's Day, and while only one of those three is technically a Christian holiday, uh, we as Christians, we, we celebrate all of those days with a focus on the Lord, right? Thanksgiving, we are thankful to the Lord for his goodness, for his kindness, for his mercy and his grace. And I hope you took some time this last Thursday to express some of that thanksgiving to the Lord. And then, of course, Christmas is, is easy, right? Obviously, Christian holiday, and, and we remember and we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then New Year's Day, not a Christian holiday, but, but still one that reminds us that we need new beginnings. Sometimes we just need a, a fresh start, and that's a biblical theme, and so it's something we celebrate uh, in, this, in this holiday season. So I thought that perhaps today I would share with you uh, the ultimate Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Day mess, New Year's Day message. We get all three of them in one sermon and we'll be finished, right? Um, so, so I do want to share, we won't be finished, but I do want to share with you a message that I believe uh, addresses all of these. If you look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is perhaps my favorite chapter in all the Bible, and I know I've said that before about other chapters, but I'm serious today. I love 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I just want to begin by reading two verses in the middle, and then we'll go back and read the entire chapter. In, in fact, we'll read it more than once this morning. But verse 7, that's the key verse. It says, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, I read that verse even before I tell you the context and we look at all the other verses because that in some sense is the greatest verse in all the Bible. And, and I want you to see it. I hope you'll highlight it so that when we come back to it and we see it in context, you will have a full appreciation of those words. It goes on in verse 7, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Now he says this to a man by the name of Mephibosheth. And, and we'll learn who Mephibosheth is in the next few moments, but listen to his reply, verse eight. Mephibosheth paid homage, paid homage to King David and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Now several years ago, I was preaching on this passage of scripture, a different message, but, but perhaps a, a, the same focus. And I borrowed a title from Adrian Rogers. It's a well-known sermon that he preached, not from this passage of Scripture, but from 2 Samuel chapter 18. And he called his message, Good News for Dead Dogs. And I thought, well, that would be a great title for my message on 2 Samuel chapter 9. What I was not thinking about, though, is the fact that our church at the time would always put my sermon title on the marquee out in front of the church. 
And so they put it out there that this week our pastor is going to be preaching good news for dead dogs. Now, I didn't even know it was out there until a Facebook post went viral. Somebody had driven by the church, taken a picture of the sign, and had written this rant about how churches had abandoned the Bible and all we had to preach about today were dead dogs. And so it was pretty embarrassing. Uh, But today I'm going to preach on dead dogs, not the four-footed kind, but the two-footed kind. I want you to see what the Bible has to say, good news for, for for dead dogs. Now, The reason I want to focus on this today is because when we fully understand 2 Samuel chapter 9, it will will fill our hearts with gladness. It will fill our lips with praise. It will fill our soul with the life-changing mercy and grace of God. We've had some, some tough subjects in recent days. We've talked about idolatry, and we've talked about selfishness, and those have been difficult messages to preach, probably difficult messages to hear, but it's all good news today, okay? All good news today. So 2 Samuel 9, I think the best way to approach this today is to look at the chapter three different times. We're going to start at the beginning, we'll go to the end, and then we'll start over, we'll do it again, and then we'll do it three times. And the first time through, I want to see it I want us to see it from a historical perspective. What is happening here? Who are the different players and and, and why is it what it is? So we'll look at it from a historical perspective. Then when we finish, we'll go back to verse 1 and we'll look at it again from a theological perspective. What do these events, what are the specifics of this event tell us about our Lord, our Father in heaven? And then we'll go back and look at it once again from an experiential perspective. Uh, perspective. What does this tell us that we should do? At the end of the day, how should we respond uh, to what we have read? So let's start with a historical view. Look with me, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now let me tell you who's who. Uh, It's David who's speaking here. David is the king of Israel. He's been the king of Israel for a number of years. This is still early in his reign, but but he has been king for a number of years. Uh, The passage, the verse also mentions Saul. David was the second king. Saul was the first king. Now Saul had been chosen by God just as David had been chosen by God, but Saul had rebelled against God. He had not followed the instructions of God, and God had taken his hand off of Saul and decided to uh, anoint David to be the next king. So there was a time when Saul was still the king, but David was the king elect, so to speak. He was going to be the next king. And so there was this rivalry uh, that Saul just hated David because he knew that David was, was going to be the next king. And Saul, in fact, tried to kill David on a number of occasions. David did not hold any animosity against Saul, even when he had good reason to do so. In fact, David had a couple of opportunities that he could easily have killed Saul and, and just made himself the king, but he refused. He said, Saul is God's man, and I will not bring harm to God's man. But there's this terrible tension between these two men. Now, the third name you see in verse 1 is the name Jonathan. Jonathan was King Saul's son. Now think of all that that means. If you're the son of the king, then that means one day you will be what? 
You will be the king. So he's next in line to be the king, but now his dad has rebelled against God, has, has been disobedient toward God, and so God has chosen David to be the next king. Saul gets left out of the mix. Saul would have had every reason to be angry about that, but what's interesting, I'm saying Jonathan should have had every reason to be angry about that, but Jonathan and David formed this friendship. And it's a very unlikely friendship, but they form this friendship. And, and Jonathan promises to protect David, and David promises his love to, to Jonathan. And so those are the three characters we see right here in verse 1. David the king, Saul, the previous king, who now is dead, and Jonathan, Saul's son, who also uh, is, is dead. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So Ziba, we'll read about him a little later in 2 Samuel. I think it's chapter 16. He ends up being a bad guy, not a good guy. But here, at least in this chapter, he's a good guy. Look at verse 3. It says, So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness to? Now let's just stop there a moment. And ask, why is it that, that the king would want to know if there was anybody left in Saul's family? Can you think of a reason why he would have asked that question? He says here he wants to show kindness to those people. But that would have been a very suspicious comment. People probably wouldn't have believed David. Why is it normally that a king would want to know if there's anybody left of the previous king's family? The, 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 the throne has changed dynasty from, from Saul's family now to David's family. And so David said, is there anyone left in Saul's family? Well, you've got to understand some things about kings in those days. First of all, a king had absolute position. There was no one in authority over him. There was no Supreme Court. Uh, there were no congressmen. There, there was no election. He had absolute position. Because of that, he had absolute power. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Nobody could stop him. Nobody could stand against him. And because of that, he had the absolute prerogative of life and death. And so ordinarily, what would happen when there would be a change of dynasty is that the new king would, would locate all of the family members of the previous king and he would conduct a royal purge. Now that's a nice way of saying he would kill all of those people. Now why would you do that? Well, because you don't want one of those men a few years into your reign as king to stand up and say, I am the rightful king. You don't want to have those challengers out there. So ordinarily, the new king would have the people in the family of the previous king killed. And so now David says, is there anyone left in Saul's family? And everybody must have thought, here he goes. He's going to hunt these people down and he is going to kill them. So what happens? If you continue to read in verse three, it says, Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. Ziba says, there's one man left. It's Jonathan's son. But king, listen, He's injured in both feet. Why would he even say that? He wants to say, he wants the king to understand, David, this, this man who remains, he is nothing. He's injured. He can't walk. He's crippled. He will never be a threat to you. There's just one man left and he's crippled. You should leave him alone. And so it's interesting to, to know really how this 
this man was crippled. His name is Mephibosheth. We saw that in verse 7. We'll, we'll see it again in a moment. Uh, a few years earlier, Mephibosheth was just a, a young boy. He was living in the palace. His, his uh, grandfather was the king, King Saul. His father was Jonathan, uh, the one who would be, become the king eventually. And, and, and so then, of course, Mephibosheth would have been next in line to be the king. So he's just a, a couple of generations away from being the king him, himself. And so Saul, the king, dies in battle. And so does Jonathan, Saul's son. He also dies in battle. And so now David has pronounced himself king. And so word comes back to the palace and they are thinking that this bloodthirsty man, David, is going to now come to the palace and he's going to kill everybody here. And so they just start to flee. They're just trying to get out of there as fast as they can because they're worried that David would come. Now, David was not that kind of man, but certainly that's what Saul, the king, would have said about David. And so now everybody's afraid. And so here's little Mephibosheth. The Bible says, uh, 2 Samuel 4, 4, the Bible says that a nurse picks up Mephibosheth and she's going to run. She's got to get away before David comes. So she picks him up and she begins to run and she falls down and she crushes his feet and his legs. There was no chance. There was no time to go to the hospital or see a doctor. There's not really anything they could have done in those days anyway. His his feet and his legs were just crushed. They were broken. And, and we don't know to what extent, but now he's a crippled man for the rest of his life. His feet, uh, the Bible says, uh, were, were crushed. Now, with that in mind, uh, let's continue to read. It says in verse 4, the king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodibar, at the house of Michar, uh, son of Amiel, so King David had him brought from the house of Micker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So where, where is this man, Mephibosheth, with the crippled feet, the, the grandson of the previous king? Where, where is he? Well, he lives in Lodabar. Now, we don't know exactly where Lodabar was located. Uh, some people suggest it was about 15 to 20 miles uh, south of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just off the Jordan River. Uh, that would make it about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And, and some people believe that that's, that's probably the location, but, but we don't know. We don't know where it was geographically, but we do know where it was emotionally. We do know where it was spiritually. See, the word Lodibar means a no-named place. It means a place of desolation. And, and, and so we, we see this, that, that, that Mephibosheth lived just in the middle of nowhere. Mephibosheth lived in a place as far away as he possibly could get, a no-name place on the edge of the world. He lived in nowhere. We know that spiritually and emotionally, Mephibosheth lived in the place of unrealized hopes. I mean, think about things from Mephibosheth's perspective. Uh, he was going to be the future king, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, right? His, his grandfather was the king, and so soon his father would be the king, and then he would be the king. He would be king of Israel. He would be the king of God's country. But now all of that is lost. All of that is gone. The hopes, the dreams, what could have been. If, if Mephibosheth would have had a t-shirt on, it would have said, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Right? His motto was, if only, if only. But now all of his dreams have been crushed. 
He lived in Lodabar, the place of unrealized hopes. He also lived in the place of unabating fear. Uh, so he must have known, and perhaps this is why he lived so far away from Jerusalem. He must have known that at some point the king would come looking for him, that the new king would find him and have him executed. That was the common thing that would happen in countries in those days. And so he knew every day it could be his last day. He knew every time he woke up in the morning that, that, that he might not be going to bed that night before his life was concluded, before he was executed. He knew every time he had a meal, that might be the last meal he ever had, he would have lived in a place of, of unabating fear. And Lodabar also was a place of unrelenting bitterness. I mean, you just think about what Mephibosheth must have, must have thought. Here, here his life was destroyed because perhaps what God had done. Maybe Mephibosheth was angry at God. God, why would you let this happen? Why would you let this, this nurse fall on my legs? And everybody else made it out of the palace, but I was the one that was crippled for the rest of my life. God, why would you have let this happen? Maybe he was angry at God. Or maybe he wasn't angry at God. Perhaps he was angry at David. Had David not been such a bloodthirsty man, which was not true, but what he would have expected to be true, had David not... Uh, waged war against his grandfather Saul, had David not been this wicked, ambitious man, then I could still be the king. Or maybe he wasn't angry at God or David, maybe he was angry at the nurse. If that nurse, that clumsy woman, if she had been more careful, if she had looked where she was stepping, had she taken her time, had she not been so panicked, then I never would have had my legs crushed. I would never have been crippled the rest of my life. So he lived in Lodabar, the place of unrealized hopes, unabating fear, and unrelenting bitterness. Mephibosheth is in a hard, hard place. Now, here's why it's important to know, to know about Lodabar, because many people today live in Lodabar, right? I mean, you've never been to the, to the place of Lodabar, perhaps, but you live in Lodabar. You have had your dreams crushed. You're disappointed. You had all these things. Uh, uh, here's what you wanted your family to look like, your marriage to look like. Here's what you wanted your career to look like, your ministry to look like. And, and, and because of circumstances, maybe they were of, of your own choosing or maybe not, all of that has been lost. And so your, your dreams have just been crushed or maybe you're living in fear. You don't know what's going to happen, and you fear you're going to lose a relationship. You fear you're going to lose your health. You fear you're going to lose your joy. Or maybe you live in Lodabar, the place of, of bitterness. I, I talk to people often who are just angry at God. God, why did you take my spouse away? And why did you let my child die? And why did you let this circumstance happen? And why was there an accident? And why was there this? And why was there that? People are angry at God. Or, or, or some people are just angry at other people that, that have hurt them in some way and been unfair to them. And, and so they're just consumed with bitterness. So just as Mephibosheth lived in Lodabar, many people today, many people live in, in Lodabar. Well, let's, let's continue to read verse 5. Uh, says, so King David had him brought from the house of Michar, son of Amiel in Lodabar. I think I just read that. Verse 6, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. This is Mephibosheth's worst nightmare coming, coming true. And he he falls face down before the king. 
He knows that this is likely the end of his life. But then we come to verse 7. That verse we began with, one of the greatest good news verses in all the Bible. He says, these are the words of David, don't be afraid. Uh, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. That's the key verse in the whole, whole chapter. We'll come back to that. Mephibosheth, verse 8 that we read a moment ago, paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Why would he say that? He knew that he had no value to the king. He was crippled. He was, he was in the other family. So he humbles himself before the king. Verse 9, then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons, your servants are to work the grounds for him and you are to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. Listen to this. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is to always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Isn't that interesting? Mephibosheth is to always eat at my table. What's just happened there? David has just adopted Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephibosheth, this crippled man worth nothing, uh, couldn't take care of himself, couldn't, couldn't uh, have, have, any, have any financial value to anybody, the person who could have been an enemy to David, but David adopts him. That's what adoption would have looked like in those days. And then continue to read verse 11, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all that my Lord commands. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. And so you see it there again, that, that adoption, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. You wonder, why, why, why are those last four words there? We already knew that his feet were injured. Why does it say it again? I think it's just a constant reminder that, that he was there because of the goodness and the kindness of David. And he stayed there because of the goodness and kindness of David. His feet were still lame. He still was worthless to the king. But the king kept him there because of the king's kindness, because of the king's goodness. So that's the, that's the story. That's the history. Uh, this, was a, this was a real event. Happened about 990 B.C., so about 3,030 years ago. This is a real event. But now I want us to look at the event again. At this time, I want us to look at it from a theological perspective. What does this tell us about the Lord? And this is, this is my favorite part. Look, at, look back at verse 9. We'll go back through this a little more quickly perhaps this time. Verse 1 says, David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Here's the first thing you should notice. Was this relationship... This restored relationship between David and Mephibosheth, did it start because Mephibosheth reached out to David or did it start because David reached out to Mephibosheth? Well, it was the second one, right? 
The only way this could have happened was for David to initiate this, for David to reach out to Mephibosheth, for David to hunt down Mephibosheth and offer him this grace and this mercy. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible say that we have a relationship with God? Is it us reaching out to God or is it God reaching out to us? The Bible makes it clear. This is such good news. It's God reaching out to us. The Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, David reached out to Mephibosheth is a picture of God first reaching out to us. Isn't it good news? If, if it would have depended upon Mephibosheth reaching out to David, it would have never happened. And if it would have depended on me and you reaching out to God, we would never have been saved. We talked about it last week, Romans 3, I think it was verse 11, that no one seeks God. Aren't you thankful that God took the initiative? Aren't you thankful that God reached out to you, convicted you of sin, provided a way that you could be forgiven and saved you? Because if it would have depended upon us, just as if it would have depended upon Mephibosheth, none of us, none of us would be saved. There's another fantastic truth right here in verse 1. On whose behalf was Mephibosheth forgiven? Do you see that? Look at, look at it again. It's worth, it's worth seeing it for yourself. David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? So David, who represents God in this, uh, in this story, shows kindness to Mephibosheth, who represents me and you in this story. And so David shows kindness to Mephibosheth based on what? Based on Mephibosheth? Based on something that was valuable in Mephibosheth? Based on something that Mephibosheth did or could do or might one day become? No. He, he showed this kindness to Mephibosheth simply based on something that happened with Jonathan. So he did it for Jonathan's sake. In fact, there was a commitment, there was a covenant between David and Jonathan that occurred before Mephibosheth was even born. Mephibosheth wasn't even a person when David told Jonathan, I will show kindness to you. And so now David shows kindness to Mephibosheth, not because he deserved it, not because he was worth it, but because of Jonathan. God shows me kindness, but it's not based on any value I have. It's not based on anything I've done or ever will do. It's not based on who I am or who I might be one day. God has shown me kindness and it's based solely and entirely on who Jesus is. Do you understand that? Here's how the Bible says it. 1 John 2, 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. We can become a child of God today. We can receive from our father what Mephibosheth received from David based on what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news here. Now, let's continue to read. Let's skip down to verse 3. He says, so the king asks, is there anyone left of Saul's family uh, that I can show kindness, the kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, there's still Jonathan, whose son, uh, there's still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. Verse 4, the king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Michar, son of Amiel. Now, I want you to notice here some things that the king didn't ask. He didn't say... Is there anyone qualified 
for me to show forgiveness to. He, he didn't say, is there, is there some son, uh, some family member of Saul that's a great, noble, righteous man that I could show kindness to? He didn't ask that. Why did he not ask that? Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter the, the, the noble character of the person because David was doing it not because of the noble character of Mephibosheth or any value in Mephibosheth. David was doing it because of Jonathan. David also didn't ask uh, when he heard that Mephibosheth was lame in his, in his feet. He didn't say, how did he get that way? Did, did he get that way because he was doing something he shouldn't have done? Did he get that way because he was somewhere he shouldn't have been? Why didn't David inquire about how he got his feet broken? Because David didn't care. He wasn't going to show kindness because of something good or bad in Mephibosheth. He was showing kindness because of Jonathan. You see a theme here? David didn't ask, well, exactly how far away is he? Uh, Ziba said, this, uh, this Mephibosheth king, he's, he's a long ways away. David didn't say, well, exactly how, how far away is he? Because it didn't matter. David was determined to show kindness to Mephibosheth because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. I think about Ephesians 2.13. In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, it doesn't matter today how far away you are. God is ready to save you if you'll come. And then look at verse 7. Again, it says, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all of your grandfather Saul's fields and you always eat meals at my table. How long, did you notice it? How long will Mephibosheth eat at David's table? Well, he says always. For as long as David is the king, Mephibosheth will eat at his table. And so when God forgave me, when God chose to, to save me because of what Christ has done for me, how long am I a child of God? How long will I eat at the king's table? I will eat at the king's table for as long as God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. For as long as he is God, I have a place at his table. Isn't that good news? Now look at verse 11. It ties right into verse 7. It says, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my Lord and the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Now, if you know the story of David, you, you may be familiar with the, with the sons and the, and the daughters of the king, uh, great men and women. I'll just run through a list. Imagine the dinner bell rings, your fly on the wall, and there's the table that has been set out for the king and his family. And so maybe first in comes Amnon, uh, clever and witty. We know he was a natural leader. Everyone would have taken notice when Amnon walked in the room. And then Joab perhaps would have come next. He was a mighty warrior and the captain of the king's armies. And he would have come in in his, uh, in his stately apparel and he would have represented power. You would have known when Joab came in. And then maybe Absalom would have come in wearing a crown, a look of royalty, Absalom, uh, with a heart and a desire to be the next king. Then, then Tamar, the beautiful daughter of the king, would have come in and everybody would have noticed, stood up, here's Tamar, and given her the honor that she deserved. And then Solomon would have come in, the wisest man, the smartest man that ever lived. 
And then Mephibosheth would have come in. He would have uh, been dragging a bum leg. He may even have been crawling, maybe fumbling with some crutches, and it's hard for him to come in and finally gets to the chair. And he didn't look like anybody else, but he pulls himself up to the chair, and he finally, perhaps it takes five minutes, but he gets to the chair, and, and, he, and he sits up as straight as he can, and he, and he pulls the tablecloth over those crippled legs. And that tablecloth is the tablecloth of grace. Because when he pulls that tablecloth over his legs, he's just like everybody else. You know, in God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. Uh, God has no stepchildren. And with the grace of God, we all come to God perfected because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So look at verse 12. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and his feet had been injured. I think, as I said a moment ago, those last four words are just a reminder that Mephibosheth didn't just need the grace of God to come. He didn't just need the grace and the mercy of the king to come to the table. But he needed it. He continued to need it every single day, and it was there for him. And so this story tells us something about the Lord, about our Father, and about the salvation that we can have. But then I want us to look at it one more time, and I want us to see, see it in an, an experiential way. I want us to see what it is that we should do, how we should respond. We've already seen what God has done, and that, of course, is the most important part. But there are some things that others had to do in order for this account to end as it ended. So let me share with you three things. And I'll share, share them with you as, as commands. because these, these are instructions for us. First of all, we should go. We should go. So David issues the command to his servants, go to Lodabar and bring back Mephibosheth. Now what if they hadn't gone? What if they would have said, it's too far to go to Lodabar. It's just too far. We're busy people. There's, there's so many things going on. You know, my family, my work, and, and it's just too far. I'm not going to go to Lodabar. It's too far. Or what if they would have said, he's not worth it. I mean, it's Mephibosheth. He's just this, this, this grandson of a washed up, deceased king. He's crippled in both feet. He has no value. He's, he's living as, a, as just a, a pauper out there. He's not worth it. Or what if they would have said, if we went to get Mephibosheth, I'm not convinced he would come even if we asked him. Even if we went to see Mephibosheth and we said, Mephibosheth, the king wants to show you kindness and goodness, I don't think Mephibosheth would come. So what if they would have said one of those things and they had never gone to Lodabar? Here's what would have happened. Mephibosheth would have never encountered David. He would have never received the forgiveness because of his father, Jonathan. Had those people, those servants not gone, the story wouldn't have ended the way it, way it ended. Now, what we have, to, we have to remember is that we know some Mephibosheths. You know some Mephibosheths, and I know some. And, and, and they're struggling, and, and they're living with bitterness or anger or fear. Their dreams have been crushed. And, and our father, the king, says that we should go. We should go and bring them to the king. We should go and share with them the good news about the mercy and the grace of God. But so often we... 
We just say, well, it's too far. It's, it, I, I'm a busy person. It's just not convenient. I've got things to do. My family, my work, I, you know, I'm tired. There's, there's, there's just, it's just too hard, and we don't go share. Or some people will say that they're just not worth it. I just don't care enough for those people. Or, or, or sometimes we'll say, you know, even, Pastor, if I were to go and share with that person and tell them about Jesus or invite them to church, they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come in 100 years. I know those people. They're just a Mephibosheth. They would never come. Well, they won't come if we don't go. And so the first instruction I see in this chapter is that we should go. We should go. And, and there's no better time than in a holiday season when people are already thinking about these kinds of things. We should go. And we should be the bearers of good news. The king wants to show you kindness, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus deserves it. And he wants to show you kindness on behalf of the name of Jesus. We need to go. The second instruction I see here is that, that, we, should, that we should come. We should come. Imagine if you were in Mephibosheth's shoes and the word comes, the, the servants come and they say, won't you come back to Jerusalem? Won't you come to the king? He, he wants to show you kindness. Won't you come? What if Mephibosheth would have said, listen, my legs hurt. It's a hundred miles from here to Jerusalem. It's just too hard. I'm just not willing to do it. My legs hurt. What if he'd have said, listen, I've learned to be comfortable where I am. I mean, it's a whole new place. It's a whole new lifestyle. I, I, I may not be in the best spot, but I've learned right here in Lodabar how to get by, and I'm just satisfied with that. Or what if Mephibosheth would have said, I might do that, but now's not the right time. I will go to the king when I choose to go to the king. What would have happened if Mephibosheth would have had an excuse and refused to go when the king invited him? Well, of course, we can't know for sure, but just looking at how, how these uh, royal purges worked, had, had he refused to, to go when the king called him, had he rebelled against the king, the king probably would have seen him as, uh, as, as some enemy. He would, have, he would have seen him as an adversary. And the king would have likely had Mephibosheth executed for that. He, he, he would have lost his life because he didn't respond. Now listen, God's calling people. God's calling people who are listening to me right now to come. God says, listen, I, 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 I want to forgive you, not, not because you deserve it, but because of what, what Christ deserves. And so for the, for the sake of Christ, I want to forgive you. And if we refuse because it's just too hard or it's just, I've just learned to be, to be comfortable where I am or, or I'll come, but I'll come when I want to come. I'll come at some later time. Listen, the only place for life is with the Lord. And if we refuse to come, nothing waits us but death and hell and punishment. We should go and share the good news. But for some who, who, who are listening to me right now, you should come and respond to, to the invitation of God. And then finally, we should stay. What if Mephibosheth had gotten up halfway through the meal on day one? And what if he'd have said, thanks, king, for the invitation, but I'm going back to Lodabar. 
Now you think, well, he would never do that. But you know some people that have done that, right? I know some people that have done that. I know people that have heard about the grace of God, have responded to the grace of God. People that, many of whom I believe, best I can tell, were genuinely forgiven and saved. And they were brought into the family of God. But they have, they have decided to go back to Lodabar. And I know people, I know people who, who are on the membership rolls of the First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches who are living in Lodabar. They have just walked away for whatever reason. And you can have a thousand different reasons, but they've walked away. They've walked away. What would David have done? And here we're speculating. What would David have done if, if Mephibosheth would have just left what would David have done had Mephibosheth gone back to Lodabar? Well, I believe two things. I believe, first of all, David's heart would have been broken. Because he, he loved Mephibosheth because he loved Jonathan. His heart would have been broken. The second thing is I believe that David would have kept Mephibosheth's spot waiting. He'd have sent out the food every day. He would have kept the chair warm and he would have waited for Mephibosheth to one day return. And, and I believe if you've walked away from the Lord, if, if, you have, if you have gone back to Lodabar, I believe that God's heart is broken, but I believe that he waits. The table is still set. The food is still there. God's forgiveness is still available. He waits for you to come back. That's the heart. That's the heart of God. I told you this was a, a holiday message because it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, and it's New Year's. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that as we close. It's Thanksgiving because some of us, when we are reminded of these truths in 2 Samuel 9, we just need to express our thanksgiving to God that he has been so good to us because of Christ, that he has saved us, that he has, by his own initiation, reached out to us that we might be children of God. For, for, for many of us, our response needs to be thanksgiving. But, but for many people, we just need to be, be mindful of Christmas because, see, Christmas, Christmas is God sending Jesus to, to make this covenant, to make this contract, to provide a way that, that now our sins could be forgiven, not based on us, but based on Jesus. I told you that, that this covenant between David and Jonathan was made likely before Mephibosheth was even born. And God and Jesus, they have made a way even before you were born that you could come back, that you could come to the Father and so for Christmas, this is Christmas for, for, for many people that are listening. And you need to come to Christ for the first time. The, the arrangements have been made. That's what Christmas tells us. And then it's, it's New Year's. It's a New Year's celebration. Because we learn from this story, uh, we learn from this historical event that sometimes we just need a brand new start. Some of us have been in Lodabar just too long. We've been angry. We've been bitter. Our dreams are crushed, but the Lord has a place set for us at his table. And if we'll come back, if we'll, if we'll walk with him, if we'll let this be a new beginning, he waits for us at the dinner table. He waits for us to come. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, I want to share one more verse with you, but I don't want anybody looking around. I just want you to focus on this. It's a New Testament verse, and it's familiar. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 
It says, the Lord stands at the door and knocks, waiting for us to open the door. And it says, if we'll open the door, that he will come in. This is interesting. He will come in and eat with us, and we will eat with him. And so today, the Lord is knocking at the doors of the hearts of the people listening to me. And he's waiting. He wants to feast with you. He has a place set at the table for you. If you'll open the door, if you'll invite him in. Father, I'm thankful that you reached out to me like the king reached out to Mephibosheth. I'm thankful that you saved me because of the work of Christ just as you saved Mephibosheth, just as David forgave Mephibosheth because of his commitment to Jonathan. But Father, I know that I am, that I am drawn to Lodabar. And I know how easy it is for me to leave the table. Father, today, invite us back. Help us to hear that invitation to come back. Help us to hear you knocking at our doors, at the hearts, at our hearts. And help us to respond to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing and respond.